And welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. With me today is my friend, someone who I'm honored and proud to call a friend, Mr. Leo Melamed, who is, if you don't know his story, has, I was just talking to him before we started recording today, a has lived a is living a full life, has an absolutely fantastic story, is a real model for me, and a an icon, a legend a hero, enter any other word you possibly want. Leo, I am so happy to talk to you again, have you back on the show. Thank you so much, as always. Well, you're, you're very kind, <laughs> far too generous. So um, today I want to talk to you, Leo. I've, I've spoken to you a few times, and we have a lot of really good feedback from every time you're on the show about your books, and that's plural. The latest book, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is Man of the Futures. Leo was kind enough to send me a signed copy, which again, thank you kindly, Leo, for that. This story is about Leo. It's a fantastic, fantastic read. It's, uh, I'm gonna let Leo go further, but there's other books. And Leo, what I'm really interested on, I, I can go on and on, but I mean, you've got them all on your end. What I'd really like to know, Leo, can you take us back in time, you know, uh, to when you started coming up with the ideas of writing the books and then talk to us a little bit about each book and the thought process behind it, the big lessons from it, so on and so forth, please. Well, thank you for the uh, opportunity and uh, introduction right here. Um, I, I was a avid reader in my high school days and mostly science fiction. I loved science fiction and um, somewhere along the line, um, just after I launched the IMM, the IMM was, of course, the International Monetary Market. That was the first exchange and, and only exchange that traded in futures, but in financial contracts or instruments of finance. And um, I begin with that because the IMM really represents me. Um, I was the one and only chairman of that exchange. Um, it, uh, was born in uh, May 16th, 1972. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but it had a gestation period of several years because nobody believed that future markets can be used for instruments of finance. And I thought just the opposite. In fact, I thought that futures markets could provide a better mechanism for ensuring risk than anything that they had in finance. And in agriculture, of course, you know, there was the Board of Trade with its uh, corn and soybeans and the like. So if it worked in agriculture, I kept saying to myself, um, why shouldn't it work to um, finance? Right. And no one believed me. Not only they didn't believe me, they left me out of the boardroom. What this lawyer who isn't even an economist, what the hell does he know? Yeah, he was, he became chairman because he was popular in the floor and so forth. But what the hell does he know about markets? Right. Well, they were all wrong, but I had to prove it to them. And so I thought that the only way I could prove it is if I went to my mentor, the professor down the street at the University of Chicago called Milton Friedman, the arguably the best and biggest economist of the 20th century. 
And I asked him to please not laugh at me. <laughs> and he smiled. He said, no matter what you say, I promise not to laugh at you. I said, okay, because everyone else is laughing at me. I have an idea to launch foreign currency futures. And he said, oh my God, what a great idea, do it. Oh, wow. So and right away he knew. Stopped. Wow. <laughs> at that moment, I don't think I took another breath for a second or two and said, can, can you repeat that? He said, of course, it's a great idea. You must do it. You're chairman of the Merck. I said, but don't you understand? Everyone tells me futures are made for agriculture and commodities and things like that, not finance. Oh, he says, there should be no reason why it shouldn't work in finance. I said, you know what? No one's going to believe me. Right. And he smiled. He said, just tell them. I said, no, no, no. Professor Friedman, you got to put it in writing. Right. Oh, I was a brazen kid. This is my early 30s. Maybe I was 31. Wow. And, and here was the ultimate hero of economics, Milton Friedman, and talking to this kid. And, and I said, you have to put it in writing. He said, oh, you want a feasibility study of why foreign exchange could make a good futures market? I said, exactly. He says, well, I'm a capitalist. I said, I understand how much. That's how it works. Said, right? How about $5,000? I said, perfect. Filled. And we made a deal. And uh, something on the order of two weeks, three weeks later, I had in my hands Milton Friedman's paper, and with that paper, I went around the world many, many times and said, hey, you don't have to believe me, right. but here is Milton Friedman. And he says, I have a good idea. Right. So you better listen. In shorthand, that was beginning of my career. It actually began a couple of years before that, because I didn't just parachute in as chairman, you know, I had uh, um, the old exchange, which was uh, born as the butter and egg exchange traded in, well, butter and eggs. <laughs> and of course, in um, later in pork bellies, and that's what it was famous for. Um, I gave up a good career in law. I was doing very well in law, so much so I could buy a Corvette. That, that's a sign of success. Wow. And, um, but I had been a clerk at the Merck okay. for a number of years. Okay. And the reason I was a clerk at the Merck is important for you to know. I had entered law school. Mm -hmm. And my law hours were going to be that first year from two to six. And I then decided I have to get a job right. in a law firm so that I could do that in the morning maybe and then go to school. Um, I couldn't, couldn't afford to borrow the money from my parents didn't have. Um, the long, long and short of it, my friend called me that there was an ad for a paper for a runner by a law firm called Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and B. 
makes sense. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. With a right. name like that, it had to be a law firm, right? Right. So I applied, and pretty soon I found myself not at a law firm, but at the Chicago Merck. Oh, wow. And of course, I took the job anyway, and it led me to a love affair with futures. So my, this kind of begins the beginning of my career in future markets. Got it. So did you fall, was it instantly where you fell in love, love at first sight, or you went there expecting, you just wanted a job? Was it the money that kept you, or was it the excitement of being on the floor? Or, you know, if you can speak to that a little bit. That's a great question, but the answer is very easy. It was certainly not the money. It was $25 a week, okay? And it it was bare bare enough to to go to school with. Um, No, I fell in love. I mean, I didn't know what it was really. I mean, it was Alice in Wonderland, right? Right. And these people running around shouting and, and pushing and and uh, whatever they're doing. I said to myself, I want to know and I want to do it. Right. And so the love affair lasted long after I got there. I I think I became a clerk, of course, for Merrill Lynch, and then I became um, I went to my father and borrowed. $3,000. Oh, wow. That's all. He only had 5000 in the passbook he showed me. Wow. And their membership was three grand. And, and he really didn't want me to leave uh, the law profession where I was successful. Right. But he had faith in me anyway for a moment and gave me loaned me the $3,000 and I bought the membership. And then that was while I was still in law school. But oh, he wow. made me promise that I would practice law and not give up law school and so forth, which I carried out for a number of years. So what, what, around what year was that when you bought the, the, uh, when I, or the, the 3000 I, I went there in 1953, 53. 53, got it. Yeah, and I had just entered law school then. Got it. And for the next five years or so, I did both. I grew up in uh, in being a runner on the Merck and then a, cl- a clerk. And then when I bought the membership, um, Merrill Lynch even used me as a broker. So I learned really from the bottom up to chairmanship of the exchange. I love the story. It's fantastic. So you started in your 20s. You fell in love with it instantly. And then you said, okay, I want to buy a membership. You bought the membership. You borrowed the money from your dad, who only at the time had 5000 but he believed in you. Then he said, the condition was, I'll give you the 3000 but you have to continue practicing law. You bought the membership. You'd go work there during the day, and then you'd go to law school at night until you graduated, and then you'd practice law, I'm assuming, after the- after the, For about six years. For six years. So you did both? You were- <laughs> working at the i tried to do both okay my, my trading wasn't that good you can't you can't be a part-time trader i learned that i was about but to ask that I, I kept doing it i was right. a pretty good lawyer and so um that was not the problem but the problem was that i loved trading i didn't love lawyering and so yeah. eventually in 1965 i think um i decided to give up the practice of law, even though it was good to me, and sold my partnership uh, to the partners mm-hmm. and became a full-time trader. Got and it. two years later, elected to the 
Chicago Mercantile Exchange Board. Wow. And that that is quite a story. And given given that I was a uh, a Holocaust survivor, you know, I was born in Poland in Bialystok. Yes. And when I was seven years old, a World War II began, and we were captured by the Nazis. And my father, who was a brilliant, brilliant man, knew in 1939, he knew to run wow. with his wife, my mother, and me. Wow. And uh, that, that is a famous story, how we ended in Japan, uh, courtesy of Sugiyan, uh, Chuyun Sugihara, the Japanese general counsel that issued us a visa to go to Japan and save our lives oh, wow. from, from the Nazis, yes. So how old were you when you came to the States? Nine. Nine. Did two you... years of running all over the world, actually, wow. to get us here. And luck played, of course, a big role. But my father's brilliance played a much bigger role because he knew to run. And you know what happened afterwards in the Holocaust. So I don't have to explain right. how brilliant he was to get us out. Yeah, no question. So. You, did you speak English when you came here? Or did you not know any English? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't know a word of English. Wow. wow. <laughs> because you must remember, I grew up, first language was Yiddish. Yiddish, right. Second one was Polish. Right. It was on the streets of Poland, of course. Yes. And then when we escaped to Lithuania, my parents put me in school first day, and I had to learn Lithuania. Oh, wow. I don't know a word of today, but. Right. Then the Russians came on, took right. over Lithuania, and I had to learn Russian. Wow. And I still know a little bit. Then when we escaped to Japan, guess what? My parents put me in school, right. and I was now learning Japanese. But when I arrived here, not a word of English. Not a word. Wow. So you, go, you, went, you arrived here at 12, you said, right? At 12 years old, not speaking any English. No, no, nine when I oh, got here. Nine years old, excuse me. So nine years old, and then you went to law school. How old were you when you when you actually? When I, well, I graduated in 1955 from okay. law school. Okay. And uh, I had already been a trader a couple of years uh, before I grad before my graduation, but my my English, of course, um, was learned. My parents sent me to a kinder. Uh, children's camp. Okay. And the children's camp, you know, children are vicious. Yes. It's do or die. You were either going to learn English or get killed. Right. And my parents were right again, because I came out of a month, a month or two in in the camp. I came out talking English and Perfect. losing my accent almost immediately. Wow, that's an amazing story, Leo. Because in in a very short amount of time, from nine years old, not speaking any English. And you got your job, I'm assuming, within 10, to, I guess, 15 years or so. How old were you when you actually, um, when you bought the membership? And then how old were you when you became uh, chairman? Well, I was uh, 31 Wow. when I bought, either 30 or 31 when I bought the membership. Wow. And then I became a chairman of the Merck. I was already 32. 
Wow, that's amazing. So in such a short amount of time, you've accomplished so much. So like your father was a visionary, would look forward, man of the futures, you also were able to say, okay, commodities were basically traded as futures, but they didn't have stock market futures or currency futures or bond futures, et cetera. So you had that vision, that foresight to create those. And you went to Milton and you said, hey, Milton, you just support this idea. He liked it. You paid him the 5,000. Then you went around the world and you start and you created the financial futures market essentially, and then how, where was it when you first wrote the the book, the first book, and then what was that book? Okay, well that book was let me see here, um, it was this book, and it was published. Got it. In um, nineteen. This guy right here. Yes. Yeah. 1996. Here we go. And I thought in 1996, I was going to retire because I had already accomplished what I accomplished. And uh, it was time to go move on and so forth. And I had enough to write what I thought were my final memoirs, so to speak. But that book is a great reference for anyone that wants the history, because I was very meticulous. And I had asked a friend of mine named Merton Miller to dig in and follow through with the dates and the times so that I don't make any mistakes. Right. Mostly what I wanted to record is the membership that I was dealing with. They were great people. They came from all kinds of walks of life. There were doctors, there were lawyers, there were accountants, and there were gas station attendants too. Right. And right. they all bought a $10,000 membership or got their father to buy them one. And they felt that something between them and me that connected. And as one, one guy once introduced me as Moses, we would follow Leo as you followed Moses wherever he would take us. And that rapport is actually very important. So I recorded it in the first book that I wrote. So the book otherwise would have been much shorter, but I named everybody and a little bit of their history and so forth and so on. I also had no idea how important the work I had done from the point of view in 1996, which is only about 20 or so years after I launched the finance. Futures. And there wasn't enough room time-wise mm-hmm. to have a real good understanding of what the values were. That's the reason oh. that prompted me, the publisher, prompt, the new publisher, um, Harriman, and Harriman House to write another uh, memoirs, Man of the Futures, that in fact looks back now on what it was that was created and how important it was to the world. Um, And uh, that's the reason I wrote. Yes, that was just published a month or so ago. So Okay, so before we, what about crying out loud for this one? That was another aspect of my life that really deserved a second book because 
somewhere along the line, I realized that technology was taking over. Yeah. And again, nobody believed me, hardly anybody, because I thought, you know, the antiquated way of doing business in futures was this pit where a bunch of guys got to get later guys and gals, but in the beginning, just men yeah. shouting at each other, eyeball to eyeball and producing a trade. And right. that this creates liquidity, which is of course the most important element in a successful market, the bids and offers that come at you. And um, I thought, my God, it won't be long before all of this will be done electronically. Why, why not? Well, again, I faced a crowd, this time the world, that right. said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. It took me actually 10 years wow. to prove that, it, that you can create liquidity in an electronic form. I had to go to Reuters, the big communications people. Company, right. And in 1986, I went to them with the idea of an electronic transaction system. Wow. And they said, they kind of laughed up, up their sleeve because they said, are you going to take away the business of all those brokers that act as the intermediary? I said, well, I'm not going to take it away. Right. Technology is going to take it away. Believe me. Right. Anyway, when I finally finish what is called Globex, yeah. the electronic system of the um, Merck, yeah. the, the ultimate system of transactions that was followed by the entire world over time. Um, I thought that deserved a special book. Mm -hmm. It took 10 years to, to convince the world that the electronic transaction systems will work in markets, both futures and securities. And I did write for crying out loud, which explains that story. No, this is a fantastic, fantastic story. So when you saw, here he goes. Um, when you saw Leo, the, in your mind's eye, I'm really fascinated about this. The vision to do X, Y, or Z, whether it's launch the futures or Globex or whatever the case may be. And then of course you're met with resistance, which is by definition a pioneer or visionary. How, did you have? Did you ever doubt yourself and say, "Hey, maybe I'm wrong," or, or did you just you knew 100% this made sense and you're going to plow through until you figured it out? Like, how do you handle obstacles and overcome obstacles during your life? You got it exactly right. I never had a doubt, and um, I was into technology for uh, many reasons, but one of them was that I had written a science fiction book okay. called The Tenth Planet, and in that book. I let my imagination go of what technology is going to look like 10, 20, 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. And in fact, invented instruments of technology used by an alien world that oh, wow. was far in advance of what we were. So it wasn't that big a step to say to myself, look, you just written a book about the society alien, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, forward or whatever. Yeah. You would think that you can actually not have a system that merely carries an order from the desk 
to the other guy at his desk electronically? Of course you can. Yeah, no, it's a no-brainer. Of course you can, yeah. The only problem was that I was taking away the jobs of the brokers. Right. Inadvertently, I mean, it has to be that way. Technology, as a rule, will take away jobs and produce many, many more. Right. And it takes time. And you have to believe it. And so that was my job, to convince not just the Merck brokers, but the brokers in every aspect of trade right. that you could do it electronically. And it was a, a battle royale. I, I had death threats, death threats. Really? Yes. Wow. We're talking about big money, you know. Of course. The brokers between the Chicago Merck the Board of Trade and the CBOE, the Options Exchange, right. reputedly their brokers totaled a billion dollars a year in income. So wow, just commissions. You're real, real money. And, and they, all, they all had to go away. The system would absorb them in a way or, and new jobs would arise and that's exactly what happened if you you know the industry today it's full of electronic trade and it's all over the place it is a hundredfold bigger than it ever could have been in the old all open up how many people can you put in one pit anyway uh, that uh, by the way I, I love the title of the book for crying out loud because that's basically what you're telling these guys and can you talk about the cell how you sold it to them and what you told them about it's inevitable and all that fun stuff. That's right. Yeah. For crying out loud was the natural title that I came to because I was taking away the for crying out loud to a very silent computer system. But the world doesn't stop. And that's something I've recognized, as I said, writing that science fiction book taught me the beauty of uh, technology and the understanding that it's never going to stop. Right. Adam, so, it's not going to stop to this day. Anyone that tries to stop it loses. And, and so you, you, you have to uh, allow yourself that knowledge, live with it, because right. it's not going to change. You're absolutely right. So, Leah, when you, the brokers, I love what, what in the book and what you told me in person, the brokers all said no to you about the electronic concept of Globex. And you told them it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's either we do it or someone else is going to do it. And that was the sell. Is that correct? Absolutely. Did I have the story right? And then everybody was going to understand what I did. In time, uh, the German Eurex exchange was born. The London Life Exchange was born. And in Japan and in Singapore and so forth. Right. And uh, all of them would learn that it's cheaper, faster, more correct, and more of everything bigger, if you do yeah. it electronically. And bigger, and yeah. It, it, was the, it was inevitable that we would lose to a market that had that right. if we don't do it ourselves. No, it makes sense. And then when you told them that, how, would, how did they respond? Did they get it? Or did they say, hey, listen, you're still wrong and I'm right? And uh, let's, down. Kill, let's kill this guy first. Let's kill the guy. Okay, I figured that was the case. <laughs> okay, um, no, that that's fantastic. So that's for crying out loud. Uh, everybody, ten stars out of five for all of Leo's books. I strongly, strongly, I can't recommend them enough. Now, man of the futures. 
sorry, was it, um, well, let's talk about Man of the Futures for a second. So this is Leo's memoir of going back from the beginning through the career, everything Leo just talked about. What are some, Leo, for you, when you came to write this book, what was some of the, the big lessons that you'd like to share with the audience when you look back on such a masterpiece of a life? Well, you know, there's so many lessons. You really can't uh, draw just one. I, I, if, if I have put a gun to my head, I would say to you that if you believe in a dream, go for it. Don't let anybody talk you out of it career-wise. I'm talking about, and, and that's got to be true for more people than not, that if they have a strong will and they have a dream, they should follow their heart and, and go for it. This is what I did both times in, in launching finance. Yep. Once I learned that I, I'm right, uh, I had to fight for it to make it um, for everybody. And then the, it didn't take but 10 years later, I realized that Open Outcry wasn't going to be there forever. Right. So my dream became Globex. And again, I followed that dream, although this one was harder. <laughs> I, I really do. So if there's a lesson to be learned, it's not to quickly give up. And um, I, I learned a secondary lesson that uh, deserves mention because I learned that in law school. Mm -hmm. I learned that the United States system of free market arena is the greatest system in the world because it isn't just an economic system. It's a life system. Right. It allows you to think freely. Mm -hmm. No other nation in the world had that from its very beginning you had you you had the right to think freely right, well right. if you think freely ideas come to your head right. some of them aren't any good right some of them are very good but the fact is that you're thinking about it you're thinking because there are no laws to prevent you and they encourage that's what American capitalism is all about. It encourages you to try new ideas and advance further. And I learned to love the free market ideal of America. Mm -hmm. And listen, in the, in the 20th century, 70% of all inventions in the world in the 20th century were made by Americans in the country or Americans, wherever they were. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and yeah. so, you, you know, call me, call me what you will. I believe in free market capitalism. No, I love it, I love it. So Leo, okay, let me shift the, the conversation a little bit and talk more about something that both of us are passionate about. And when I first met you, I, for those that don't know, well, people watching don't know, but I was I flew into Chicago. Leo was generous enough to uh, invite me to his office. We spent the day together, and then we were supposed to spend, I think, two hours. We ended up clicking. We we ended up spending several hours. I missed my flight back home. Ended up spending another night in Chicago and left the next day. That. Oh yeah, because yeah, I ended up anyway. Um, I made it to to the airport just a few minutes late, and they they just closed the gate, and it was like one of those by the, yeah. you know, it, it's okay, it happened. But um, it was a pleasure, and I would do it a hundred times over again for the time that I got to, you know to spend with you before COVID. So, um, 
we clicked almost instantly on many topics. We have many things in common, but one of our shared interests are psychology. So you understand, you mentioned earlier today in this, uh, in our conversation today about the rapport and building relationships with people. You've got that warmth, you've got that charisma, you've got that je ne sais quoi, whatever you want to call it. Talk to me a little about a, about a winner's mentality. You know, the new thing now they're calling W's, like winners. Like how do the, what's the mindset from a, a person who's, who wins and a person who doesn't? Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Very difficult question, Adam, and, and one that I've been asked so many times, and I'm sure you too, because um, it is special. Um, a, a successful trader has a psychology that drives him to success that most people don't have in terms of being willing to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Right. Because right. you really do just that. And um, the psychology of a winning uh, trader is, I don't want to be right. I just want to make money. Right. So that leads you, if you think about that, that'll lead you to get out of losing trades very quickly. Right. Because you don't want to lose. And so you stay with the winners and you learn very, very quickly to admit to yourself when you're wrong. That's very hard to do. Yes. You know, um, people don't like to admit mistakes. Right. But in trading, if you don't make, if you don't admit mistakes, you're going to go broke you're very white, quickly. <laughs> so the white. sooner you realize you've made a mistake, the instant you do, you should get out. And to do that, uh, it takes a lot of psychology and willing to face the truth is a most difficult thing when you're wrong. That's a when great you're right, yeah. it's easy, right, but right. not when, it, when you're wrong. And, and that's key to success in trading, willing to admit you were wrong and get out of the position when you admit that. And that's the psychology involved. Of course, there's other aspects to it because the world's going to know you were wrong. Yeah, you can't hide that. You lose enough money, you know, the world knows. Oh, my God. Now the world knows I'm a loser. Right. Well, in, in the U.S., a loser isn't uh, forever. Many of, no. Right. Bill, Bill Gates is a great example. He had something going for him that didn't work with Al, Paul Allen, I think. And, and so he dropped out of Harvard. And, and was he a loser? Yeah, sure. Except he had another idea. Right. <laughs> and just think. So the U.S. gives you that second chance, third chance, fourth chance, and allows you to lose and yet not die with it. But try again. Do right. something else. Right. And uh, Microsoft is what he is something else right uh, so i i really believe in that because i am a, a i am in fact um the psychology that is willing to admit mistake because remember i got my job in open outcry this is what i fell in love with the shouting the running the pushing and i wrote in 1976 a law article for Hofstra Law, Law Review, major 
major university, right. that the only way that you can produce liquidity in a marketplace was face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, wow. shouting at each other and reaching a, a, you know, a, a, a result that you both agreed to. Right. I wrote that in a law review article. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. And, and 10 years later, I realized, oh, my God, Leo, you made a giant mistake. Right. That's not all or the only way you can do it electronically. Imagine facing the entire world and saying, I was wrong and I'm going to write that wrong. Right. That's, that's, that, that's huge. That's huge, Leo. So it's not just for trading, but it's for business. It's for ask, even relationships and all that other fun stuff as well. Exactly. It's a life's life's mission is that. Wow. I love that. And then, okay, so let's talk about the losers for a second. When you have a loss like that, a lot of people get down and, and depressed or beat themselves up mentally about it and all that kind of stuff about, oh my God, you know, and get angry or whatever the case may be, enter any negative emotion you want. You don't do that. Instead, you look at it as a learning opportunity and then you focus on your next winner. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right. It's very hard to do. It's easy to say, and you know, we've just described it, but when you're in practice of, of a losing, when you're in the middle of a losing position in a market, especially in futures that will move so fast, right? Um, it, is, it is most difficult to get out and admit to yourself, but it's even more difficult because your wife and children and friends are all going to know there's no hiding that. That makes you something of a different sort to be willing to do that. Stand up and say, tell the truth to yourself and then later to the world. So I I love that. Yeah. Embracing the truth and embracing winners and then embracing your losers as well and learning from them. So you're not, you know, crippled by fear or paralyzed by not wanting to make a decision because you're scared that you're going to lose. I hear you're writing a good book. So yeah, Leo was kind on that topic. Thank you for that. I've got a book coming out called Psychological Analysis. And the idea is, in addition to fundamental and technical analysis, my thought process from my experience short on this earth is that there's a third element, and that's called psychological analysis for trading, investing, and also for living life. And the basic premise is you want to remove emotions from the decision-making process. And then there's two sides of us, the good side, which I call the smart money superhero inside of you. And then the dumb money beast or like the Tasmanian devil that just causes chaos inside of you. And if you don't take care of that beast, he's going to just wreak havoc and, and ruin your life. If you bring out the hero inside of you, then you can rise above and step on the beast like a, uh, an ant almost and just crush it. But yes. you've got to be mindful of it. It's very, very difficult because it's your life and uh, people often think that if they failed at whatever they were doing, that's the end of their life. Well, it doesn't need to be. Right. Uh, you, you, can, you can succeed. Uh, in other countries, that's quite true, you know, where you, you, you do something and it is known that you failed at it. It's very hard for you to pick yourself up and go to some other profession or do something else. Not in the United States. No, no question. In the United States, Nobody calls you a total failure. You right. lost something, yes, but you're not a failure necessarily. Right. So your book is very much needed to explain this in detail. 
Well, I thank you kindly for that, Leo. That's a, uh, it's a great, it's, it's great coming from you and I can't appreciate that enough. So, okay, um, other questions. I had some, I asked the audience for questions for you. So is it okay if I read a few to you? Sure. Okay, fantastic. So one of the questions Leo comes in um, from Jeff, who's in uh, Miami, former Chicago. So he grew up idolizing Leo. He said, I looked up at Leo. I thought Leo was an absolute legend, genius and, and visionary. So Leo, the question is, um, he wants to know when you became chairman of the CM, the CME and you took and you, it came time to take it public with the IPO. And that was in, in 2002. Yes. Is that correct? So can you speak a little about the decision there? Because I guess he had owned the, he was a member and then he basically changed his life when it IPO'd and he, it, it, you changed his life. He wants to say thank you for it. The CME stock has caused him and his now his kids and grandkids to have a fortune. So he's very, very thankful. And if you could just speak to that story, uh, he'd appreciate it. Well, yeah, it was a, a difficult moment because no exchange um, in the history of markets has ever go, had ever gone public. Right. You know, it's it's very hard particularly the futures market is very hard to explain to the general public, what the hell you do? What is that? What is the futures market? What do you need it for? Why right. should I invest in it? Right. You know, that's a very difficult concept. It's easy if you're making uh, chairs or if you're, you know, you, yeah. you visibly do something that can be sold in a store right. or something. That's a, this can't be sold in a store. Right. It's, when, when I wrote the, uh, 10th Planet is a science fiction book. Some wag <laughs> said, I'm not surprised, Leo, you've been doing science fiction your whole life. <laughs> After all, <laughs> what are these instruments that you can't, you can't hold on to, you can't feel, you, you can't put in your pocket? What is, isn't that imagination that's science fiction, of course. But love it. Um, to sell that as a concept of uh, a marketplace, that is used to concrete, physical, uh, or, or things that you can use to make money. And here, this is imaginary. Mm -hmm. I had a devil of a time trying to explain that to Morgan Stanley, who took us public. And they unfortunately <laughs> mispriced us too, because right. You know, um, the street was the the talk was that we we are worth twenty dollars a share, give or take, and they took us public at thirty six. Right. So they they already had to convince me that that's enough of an up, and I was certain they were wrong. But this is their business. Right. Got to listen to the experts. Expert, so we right. went out um, yeah. mispriced uh, as the world quickly understood, yeah. hey, this is really a, a, a grand prize. And that's why the guy, the guy that's asking that question made yeah. a lot of money right. because he got something at a very, very low price that is worth so much more. Yes. Today, the, C, the CME group is, uh, I don't know if I can call it the biggest or the greatest or whatever. Um, it's a little bit like Muhammad Ali said, I never said I was the best thinker. I just said I was the greatest boxer. Right. <laughs> and I admired that guy. And uh, and so, what what has to what what has to happen is that you understand the nature of what you're doing, 
and you can um, try to explain it to the general public. And little by little, they learn. Do you know, we were the very first exchange to go public. And as I said, we were mispriced. Right. None of the others were mispriced. Yeah, of course. <laughs> As right. a result of that, when they right. and and of course everybody went to go public, even the New York Stock Exchange went public. Right. So the world quickly learned yet yes, there is a there is a fundamental reason to own markets uh, as an investment. And we did it. Yeah, the stock I mean, has had a huge, huge run since going public and it's made a lot of people a lot of money. And do you, Leo, do you remember the market cap at the time when you went public, what it was? Now it's over 70 billion, but where was it when you guys went public? Do you remember? I don't think anybody knew. Anyone? Okay. Yeah, that was the next question. Okay. Um, how about the boardroom discussions leading up to the IPO? How was that? And what, can you talk us a little bit about well, that? They, they were very helpful and very willing to listen both to me and, by the way, throughout the years, I've got to give credit to the members who are asking you questions because they were there. Right. And without them, the, the helpers that I needed were right there on the floor, but they had to believe in me right. and then follow through with various actions that, that they undertook. You know, um, one of our great markets is the euro dollar market, which is yep. an interest rate market. And when it was launched, I believed it would be the biggest market in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And our economist, Fred Arditi, believed that too. And yet it took four years before it got real liquidity because wow. the world didn't accept it right away. So it isn't something that's instantly a winner. It's got to grow on you. You have to understand how it works. And then it became the biggest market ever. Wow. Ever in futures trade. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable it that really it did is. that. So uh, I don't know that I could have done any of that without the floor and the, and the many, many of the members who were willing to listen and carried out the mission. Let me tell you, that includes the board members and the present board members, as well as the present chairman and so forth. These are all very, very special people. Yeah, there's no question. So was it your idea for the IPO? Was it the board's idea? How did that, because you guys were the first ones to do it. How did that come about? Well, I think it was a joint uh, kind of response uh, from several myself and several other um, I think well-informed um, members. And we were able to convince the board itself uh, that, you know, lots of things were going public in, in those days, you know, it was after the, the, um, the crash of the- Dot-com. Uh, Dot-com and so right. forth. There was a whole rush of new um, IPOs and, we thought similarly that this was time to launch uh, our market. And we delayed it because of the crash of the uh, um, dot-com market, but, but not enough time. We didn't wait too much longer right. before we uh, went public. And, and as I said, uh, the board was very, very uh, helpful in that regard. Got it. Okay. Um, thank you for that. The next question comes in from Cindy. We, she's asking, uh, Leo, what are your thoughts since your technology and foresight and vision about 
Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? You know, I've got a mixed emotion on that, that it, and so do many others. If you read people in this, they're always kind of yes and no. And I am that way too. I, I don't like to be against any new instrument of finance. I think, you know, here I was inventing them by the dozens. So um, how can I be against? And yet there is one major difference that gives me a problem. Every time I launched a market, it had the purpose of the underlying purpose of that product was value. Okay, you can you can name any one of the futures markets that we launched. There was a reason for their launch. There was a value to their launch. It was going to ensure a certain product. It was going to help um, on a certain uh, uh, value-based industry. What does cryptocurrency or Bitcoin do? What does it support? Like the value you're saying, right? So there, the there is no underlying real value involved, except that you can do it without anybody knowing what you did. The decentralized, so the decentralized component, right? Is that what you're talking? The decentralized component, and that's right. The transparency, okay. And and, and uh, the the uh, the way it, it, it transacts, no one has to know. So if I want to, if I want to move a bunch of money to you, right, you and I can know that I did it through Bitcoin, and right. the world doesn't know. I just sent you a billion dollars. I right. wish I had. Sure, <laughs> I sort of why. Yeah, but what good does that serve? The, na the national and international population involved. Oh, I understand what you're saying. So it's not accretive from a, a tax standpoint or from a regulatory standpoint for having a lot of money move without being regulated because it opens the doors for a lot more of just nefarious type activities. Whereas when you're creating a futures market, you create trade the euro, trade whatever, the stock exchange, there's value that's being created because it's not, it, it's not, it's doing it in a regulated environment, number one. Number two, it's done on, on a trans where everyone can see what's happening. But what about the yeah. other side, though, Leo? Well, you, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, sure. It's the futures market, are, the best example is it's a giant insurance market. Right. So that if you are planting corn or soybeans or whatever you're doing uh, in building a building, and you have to borrow money from a bank to do so. In every one of those instances and a myriad of others, there is an insurance part of it. What you're doing with a futures market is insuring the price that you have to pay to get all of this done. And you're insuring, part of you is insurance a profit measure so that you can be sure that you'll get out at least the money you put in. Got it. But in doing that, you free up a lot of money that you right. would have held back. And with that lot of money, you end up building bridges and, and other jobs that are created and so forth and so on. I ask you, does cryptocurrency do that? Not in that respect, but the value that the crypto uh, proponents would argue is that it's uh, fully transparent. It's instantaneous, unlike the exchanges where it, it, the fill is the trade is the settlement and trade is the fill. Um, you've got the and for 
those reasons is yeah. that I don't say anything against it. I merely ask it. questions that haven't yet answered, been I'm answered good. successfully, at least I think. I, I, I understand that it, you know, it's brand new, even though it's already uh, over and 15 years old, years old but, right. but it's still brand new in many ways. And maybe it'll, it'll serve to prove to me that there is an underlying value that it subscribes. I'm not sure it does. Understood. So if, if, if you can add the value there, that would, you'd be a proponent of it. But the fact that you don't see in your mind's eye the value that it provides, that's why you have mixed feelings about it. But I otherwise- do, Also, I, I strongly support the idea of it being regulated. I think, I think either the SEC or the CFTC or a combination of that, have to get together. And I really think they are together with the people in China who have a very strong opinion about it. Um, it would be a good way uh, with a common ground to talk to them about, because that's what we need. We need conversation between the two nations. And that's a good one for us to get together and discuss. Right. Um, and form certain rules and regulations so that you can do away with the uh, the negative reasons that they uh, offer to criminals, let's say. Understood. Yeah, because that's the big problem with it, where people, the criminals can use it and, and all that fun stuff. Okay. Um, no, that makes perfect, perfect sense. Um, this person's asking, do you trade Bitcoin at all? No. No. Okay. I have not. I, I, I limit myself to three or four markets that I think I understand. And those are the interest rates, the currencies, and the stock market. Now, not that I'm very good at the equity trading. I'm not, but I'm pretty okay in the futures end of stock index markets. Got it. Okay. Um, our I know we're running on time, so I thank you kindly, Leo, as always. Final question here um, is coming in. Uh, well, it, it's a few people asked this question. Can you talk about your trading style and how it's evolved over the years? When we first met, you told me that you used to draw the charts on paper with your hand. And now, because the, the phone and the tablets, you can check charts and all that fun stuff. But how do you describe your trading strategy? How has it evolved, if any? And then if you can speak to that a little bit and just how people should trade is really what the questions are. They'd like to know more about how you play the game, so to speak. Well, a lot of it has to do with your own makeup, as we talked before. You know, if you are um, a person that can handle a loss and keep carrying the position at a loss, um, the, then you and and you still believe in it. Um, that that's a good trait to have. In in my days, when I was first a trader, I never carried a loss overnight. Okay, that was my okay. rule. If right. it's a losing trade before the market closes, I'm out of it. And Thank I begin you. the next day fresh or with a position that had a profit in it. So that was one of the rules. I, that's been changed considerably. I now take a position in something because I believe in it and I believe, it. and until it proves me wrong, I stay with it. So it can prove me wrong either in two ways, either uh, I lost more money than I want to lose in it. Okay. Or the technician tells me, technician inside of me, right. um, that is still a chartist, tells me that it's going in the different direction. 
than I thought. So what my time horizon has changed considerably. I was always a day trader, mostly. What I did was during the day buy, you know, sell high, buy low, and as best as you can, and only hang on to winners. Now I I stay longer with positions and they're much bigger. Got it. Uh, bigger because maybe I can afford bigger, but also because the world is much bigger now. Right. You, you can't, you can't, uh, there are no many, many, many contracts anymore, although we, we at the Merck keep trying to do that. And there is always a, an audience that we find. But, um, but in general, you know that uh, uh, the, the markets have gotten huge and therefore as a direct relationship, so has position trading and also who's trading it. It's not an individuals necessarily. It is big mountainous companies with job jillions of, of money and so forth and so on. So um, it, it's quite different. Um, some people say to me, well, your competition now is not the trader on the floor, it's Goldman Sachs. Right. So you better be careful. And that's true. It is right. absolutely true. Um, so I, I think individual traders uh, have a tough time. Uh, that's not to discourage anybody because I did it and others can do it uh, as well. Um, and um, I, I don't know what I can say to the future traders, but um, God be with you. <laughs> well, that's a great nothing, way to... <laughs> nothing better than luck. Yeah, there's no question. I, I, no, I couldn't agree with you more, 100%. Well, Leo, as always, this is a pleasure. I can't wait till I can see you again in person and or talk to you again next time. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything. Everybody out there, please, 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 I strongly recommend for your own benefit to go out and read this book, buy this book, give it 10 stars out of five like I did as a review. It is an absolutely fantastic, fantastic book that I strongly recommend and it, you can enjoy it for, enjoy, enjoy yourself after reading it. It's an absolutely remarkable story. Leo, Love you. Thank you so much for everything. And I well, thank you for this interview and all the nice things you've said. Um, there, I want to tell you something. I've been Please. interviewed many, 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 many times, and you're among the best. Oh, thank you so much. Asks the right questions and gets the gets out the answers that are important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leo. All right, we'll speak to you again soon. Bye bye.